Today's sermon will be a little bit uh, different. You know that usually I like to preach straight through a passage of scripture, sometimes even going verse by verse to look uh, in uh, great detail what the Word of God uh, says to us. Uh, But uh, today we're back in Psalm 16, and I've really already done that with Psalm 16, especially last week. We really saw uh, the meaning of this psalm. What I want to do today is work out some of the big picture implications, some of the applications that this psalm and a host of other Bible passages have to our lives. Uh, You could think of this as something like a theology of the body according to Psalm 16. Uh, Because the body actually is very prominent in Psalm 16. God's care for the body, God's love for the body, and indeed his whole uh, material, physical creation. So let's pray and we'll look at this together. Father, we do ask today that you would fill us with hope and joy and peace as we hear from your word today. Father, we thank you that the resurrected Christ is now ascended and has taken his seat at your right hand and in him. There are pleasures forevermore. Father, may we know and experience a taste of those pleasures here today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're wrapping up our look at Psalm 16. And this is also a good way to wrap up the season of Easter. Uh, because Easter is an Ascension Psalm. It's also a good psalm for, uh, for Ascension Sunday. Because it has to do not just with Christ's resurrection, but also his present Rain, which is what the ascension leads to. Psalm 16 pulls together a lot of really important themes. Psalm 16 is about joy, it's about Jesus, and it's about resurrection. It's about joy. I think that's very obvious. David here talks a lot about joy. It's especially about joy in the midst of hard times. It describes joy and calls us to a confident world-defying joy in the midst of crisis. David wrote this psalm as an outlaw, as a man on the run, as the most wanted man in Saul's kingdom. Uh, It's written most likely not in a palace, but in a cave in a time not of great personal prosperity, but of horrific adversity. That's the context for this psalm. And so when this psalm talks about joy, we need, and we need to understand that, we need to understand this is a durable joy, a resilient joy, a defiant joy. David says in verse 3, all his goodness is found in God. That is to say, all the good things in his life come from God. And not only that, but God himself is David's ultimate good. And nothing can snatch that good away from him. His ultimate good is God. He might lose everything else. He can't lose God. That's why he's joyful. He contrasts that with idols, how idols make people miserable. He's got goodness in God. He finds joy in God. Verse 4 says those who go after idols, those who go after false gods, multiply their misery. David is full of joy because he trusts God. Those who go after idols end in misery. He says in verse 9, my heart is glad, my whole person, my whole being rejoices, even my flesh has hope. This is a joy that penetrates and covers David's whole life. His whole being is full of joy. It extends to body and soul. Again, David here is describing a solid and deep joy. Further, we see it's an eternal joy because there are pleasures forevermore at God's right hand, as verse 11 says. So it's about joy. But it's also about 
Jesus. And we really saw this last week when we looked at how Peter makes use of this psalm in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. He quotes this psalm at length, and he shows that whatever immediate application it might have had in David's own day, in David's own life, David prayed this psalm as a type of the Messiah, as a forerunner and pattern that the Messiah would come to fulfill. He prays this psalm as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so this psalm finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised to David a son, Great David's greater son. God promised to David a son who would come in the future, who would take his seat on the throne. He would take his seat at God's right hand and he would rule for all eternity. Psalm 16 is ultimately about the reign of that king. It's about great David's greater son, the son God promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And Peter actually makes that connection explicit in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, when he goes from talking about Psalm 16, quoting Psalm 16, to talking about the oath that God swore David. That's referring to 2 Samuel chapter 7. So ultimately, this is a psalm about Jesus. And that means ultimately this is our third theme. This is a psalm about resurrection. It is about victory over death, triumphing over death and the grave. It's about breaking out of Sheol and entering into the glorious new creation where there are pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. Within this psalm, there are many hints that point to death and resurrection. So, for example, in verse 1, David asked God to preserve him. You pray that way when your life is threatened. God, preserve me. My life is threatened. I need your preserving power. He makes it clear. Others are trying to shake his faith. They're pressuring him to go after other gods. But he says, I won't do it. I won't drink the blood offerings of idols or even take their names upon my lips. In verse 4. In verse 6, he says he will not be moved or shaken in his faith. He has taken his stand on God's word, on God's truth, on God's promises, and he's steadfast. His faith will not be shaken no matter what happens. Further, David, you see in this psalm, David knew even if and when he did die that his flesh would rest in hope. Verse 9. Yes, he'd rest in peace. That's the expression we use, rest in peace. He would rest in peace because he knew God. But more than that, his flesh would rest in hope, the hope of resurrection. There are some people who say, oh, there's not anything about a resurrection taught in the Old Testament. That is not true. It's taught all over the place in the Old Testament. And this is one of the places where it is very explicit. Flesh that is put to rest has hope. There is hope for David's flesh even through death, even beyond death, on the other side of death. We use that expression, rest in peace. I sometimes think it'd be better off to use the expression, rest in hope, because uh, that's really what David describes here, resting in the hope of resurrection. See, David can be joyful in the midst of a life-threatening crisis because he knows one is coming who will, yes, die, but who will then conquer death, this son God has promised to him. This son of David would die and his soul would descend into Sheol. David describes that here. His body would be put in the grave, but it would not see corruption in the grave. David describes that for us in verse 10. In other words, what he's saying here is for this one who is coming, his soul will escape Sheol, and his body will bust out of the tomb. He will die, but he will be resurrected. He will rise from the dead victoriously, and then he will share this victory and this joy with his people. 
And so the joy that this psalm describes is very much tied to its typology. As it points ahead to the greater David, to Jesus, and to the promise of resurrection, which of course is the greatest joy of all. The greatest joy there is comes from knowing Jesus and sharing in his victory over death. And this is something you see all throughout the scriptures again and again. This joy of knowing that death is dead. That death has been dethroned and defanged. And so we don't have to fear death anymore. That's a source of great joy for God's people. And so you see in the scriptures God's people mocking and taunting death. Trash talking death. You see God's people rejoicing in the midst of persecution. You see God's people laughing in the face of death. Laughing in the face of tyranny. Laughing in the face of Satan. Because what can the tyrant or Satan do to us once death has been defeated? Their greatest weapon has been taken away from them. And so Paul says where is your sting, O death? Your sting has been removed. Paul expresses again and again this same unshakable joy in Jesus that David expresses in this psalm. David writes about joy in God from the cave. Paul writes about joy in Christ from a prison, but it is the same joy. Think about Paul in Philippians writing from prison saying, rejoice. I say again, rejoice. How can Paul be so happy? Why does he rejoice in the midst of such difficult circumstances? Well, it's for the same reason as David. Because he trusts in God and he knows there is this ultimate victory. Paul has this joy because he is united to the risen and reigning Christ. He knows the great king that God promised David has arrived and has won his great victory. This is a joy not even death can snatch away because it's a joy that arises precisely from the fact of Jesus' victory over death. Death can't take it away because the joy is premised upon Jesus' victory over death. If Jesus has tread death under his feet, if he has crushed the head of the serpent, we can live with joy no matter what. That's David's message. Every enemy of your joy has been vanquished. Every enemy of your joy that would snatch that joy away from you has been defeated. Jesus himself has entered into that ultimate joy, the joy of his father's love, the joy of his resurrection and reign, the joy of what his death on the cross accomplished. Hebrews 12 says that he went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. He's entered into that joy, the joy that is found at God's right hand. And now he brings us into that joy as well. God himself is the ultimate source of all joy. When David says that God is his highest and greatest good, that's really what he means. God is the source of all joy. God is an inexhaustible fountain, always overflowing with joy. In fact, I think it's really important to see this. The foundation of all joy is God's own joy. God's joy in himself. God's joy in being God. God's Trinitarian joy, you could say. Because from all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit have rejoiced in one another. They've rejoiced in one another's love. They have delighted in each other. This is a joy older than the universe. That's the joy that David is tapping into. God is a happy God. And that's good news because if God's not happy, nobody can be happy. If God's not happy, nobody has a chance at happiness. A, a God who was miserable, frustrated, unhappy is not a God who could promise us 
joy. He could not promise joy to his people. Such a God could never say, come and enter into the joy of your master, as Jesus says to us in Matthew 25. But see, the reality is God is perfectly and infinitely happy. Psalm 16 ends by saying there are eternal pleasures at God's right hand. Well, those pleasures have a name. Who is seated at God's right hand? Jesus. Jesus has entered into the joy of God. In fact, he is the joy of God. In fact, you could say first and foremost, the the first and foremost pleasure that the father has is his pleasure in his son. The father has always had pleasure and joy in his son. Think of those words that the father spoke over the son at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom is my pleasure or in whom is my delight. In Proverbs chapter 8, it's a very mysterious passage, but uh, we see there God's eternal wisdom speaking. I think this is uh, pointing us to the Son, the Son of God, who is the wisdom of God. And wisdom there is always rejoicing before God, delighting in him and bringing him delight. That's Proverbs 8. You see the Father and the Son rejoicing and delighting in one another. That divine joy that the Father and Son have in one another through the Holy Spirit, that divine joy is the foundation and basis for all human joy. It is the only basis for human joy. So we got to ask, then, how do we enter into this joy? What is this joy like? How do we experience it? How do we experience these pleasures at God's right hand? What are these pleasures? How do we find them? Well, certainly, a joy in Jesus we cannot even begin to imagine is promised to us in the future, in the resurrection. In, it's going to be an unending Uh, ever-growing joy in God's new creation, when we enter into the resurrection at the last day, that's what awaits us. A never-ending, always-growing joy. In the resurrection, there will be no more sadness or sorrow or suffering. It will be pure bliss. The only tears will be the tears of happiness. But I don't think the joy that David describes here is exclusively future. Even now, a measure of resurrection joy is available to us and is even given to us. And you see that again in David and Paul and others. David himself is experiencing this joy even as he writes this psalm. He can speak in the present tense of his whole being rejoicing, of the gladness of his heart. There are a lot of reasons why we could say this, but here's one. The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate affirmation of the goodness of creation and indeed you could say the goodness of the body. I think it's so important here. David tells us, again speaking prophetically, speaking typologically, David tells us Jesus' body, Jesus, this greater son of David, will undergo death but his body will not see decay. Jesus' body did not see decay or corruption. God cared for the body of Jesus and preserved his body and then raised his body up in glorified form on the third day. And God cares for our bodies too. He will raise our bodies from the dust at the last day and we will dwell in our bodies forever in glorified form in the renewed creation. So Psalm 16, as so many other passages of scripture do, 
Psalm 16 affirms God's commitment to his creation and to our bodies. Again, Psalm 16 is a great affirmation of the goodness of embodiment. Don't try, you know, C.S. Lewis warned about trying to be more spiritual than God. Don't try to be more spiritual than God. God likes matter. He invented it. He created it. Uh, It's often pointed out, Satan, who's pure evil, does not have a body. God, who is pure love, pure righteousness, pure joy, does have a body in the incarnation. So we should not think spirit good, matter bad, or anything of that nature. God gave you your body for a reason. Your body is good. It's part of God's good creation. And just as God cared for Jesus' body, so he cares for your body as well. And that means you should be at home in your body. You should be comfortable in your own skin. Of course, you should be a good steward of your body, just like you should take care of every other gift God gives to you. You should take care of your body. But what you must never, ever do is hate your body. God loves your body. You should love it too. The joy David describes here involves and includes the body. It's not a joy that can leave the body behind. It is an embodied joy. Now, I realize in some ways that's kind of hard to grasp, especially because our experience of our bodies is not always positive. The body can be the site of intense temptation and spiritual warfare. The body can get sick. The body can get out of shape. The body can accumulate aches and pains, as those of us who've entered our fifth decade know. Some people actually think that the Christian faith is a body-hating religion. And some Christians have actually given ammunition for unbelievers to take that view of the Christian faith. They've fallen into the error of thinking this too, that the Christian faith is an anti-body religion. This is how the atheist Michael Onfray describes it. He's really talking about Paul here, but this is just kind of his view of what the Bible as a whole teaches about the body. Listen to what he says. Paul's hatred of self turns into a vigorous hatred of the world and all its concerns. Life, love, desire, pleasure, sensations, body, flesh, joy, freedom, independence, autonomy. Paul's pen drips ad nauseum, a hatred, a contempt, a permanent mistrust for the things of the body. Okay, that, that's the view of an atheist talking about the Christian faith. What I want to argue is actually the exact opposite is true. Nobody affirmed the body the way Paul affirmed the body, or the way that we could say the Bible as a whole affirms the body. No other religion or philosophy or worldview affirms the goodness of the body the way the Christian faith does. Paul, like David before him, affirms the goodness of our physicality. In fact, it's interesting, Paul's got that line in Ephesians 5, he's talking about marriage, uh, but it's an interesting line to consider in this conversation. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And Paul connects that with how Christ nourishes and cherishes his body, the church. So Paul expects us to not hate our flesh, but to love our flesh, to nourish and cherish our bodies. See, it's not really Paul who is the real villain here, the real culprit. It's actually Plato. And Greek philosophy, there are other sources, certainly, but this is the main one in Western history. Because for the Greek philosopher Plato, the body 
uh, was a bad thing. He described the body in negative terms. His philosophy was full of what you might call body negativity. He saw the body as a prison for the soul, and salvation, therefore, is shedding the body, leaving it behind, and the soul being set free from bodily existence. But see, that's a very different conception of things than what you find in the Bible. The Hebrew prophets and the Christian apostles, so Hebrew prophets like David or Christian apostles like Paul, teach a kind of body positivity, you could say. Not what people mean by that today, necessarily, but a positive view of the body. Body positivity in the sense that the body is one of God's gifts to be used as a tool to serve him. And the body is to be used as an instrument through which we enjoy God's other gifts so often. Now, today it may seem like we're the exact opposite of Plato in our culture. It might look like we don't despise the body the way Plato did. Instead, we idolize the body uh, so we don't hate the body. We, we love the body. In fact, we love it so much we've turned it into an idol. And so we, we worship our bodies and maybe we do too much to care for our bodies. But listen to how one scholar describes this phenomenon in our culture today. It is true, is it true that Western culture devalues the body? Don't many people place a ridiculously high value on physical appearance and fitness? Consider the widespread obsession with diets, exercise, bodybuilding, cosmetics, plastic surgery, Botox, anti-aging treatments, and so on. We're surrounded by photoshopped images presenting unrealistic ideals of physical beauty. So again, it might seem that we idolize the body more than despise the body. But listen to this. To be obsessed by the body does not mean we accept it. The cult of the young body, the veneration of the airbrushed, media-produced body, actually conceals a hatred of real bodies. Many of these things actually are, are not coming to terms with the true realities of bodily existence and what it means to live as an embodied creature in God's world. See, the hope of resurrection acknowledges that our bodies are not what they should be, that our bodies are broken and damaged by the fall. Our bodies bear the effects of the fall. Our bodies are scarred by sin. Our bodies obviously are subject to death. But here's the thing. The hope of resurrection acknowledges our bodies are not what God made them to be originally. But the hope of resurrection still affirms the goodness of the body, even in this fallen world. We should long for the resurrection of the body, yes, but without despising the body in its current form, as so many do. Hating the body really means you hate God's handiwork. It's like saying about an artist, I hate your painting, I, I hate your piece of music. It means you, you, you don't appreciate the work the artist has done. If you hate your body, you hate God's handiwork, it is wrong. Again, God loves and values your body so much that even after you die, and your body will rot in the grave, unlike Jesus' body, even after you die and your body rots in the grave, God will reverse that so that your body will be raised up and glorified and you will inhabit a perfected body for all eternity. Again, David expresses that hope here. He says in verse 9, my flesh has hope. There is hope for the body, not just hope for the soul, hope for the flesh. The body will be redeemed. Now our culture has a big problem with this because we live in a culture that rejects and denies God as creator, 
uh, that does not view the world as the good creation of God, and therefore our culture despises and abuses God's good creation. We live in a culture that hates the body in all kinds of ways. Even as it idolizes the body, it despises the body as God has given it to us. Indeed, I would say people in our culture are very often alienated from their own bodies. An obvious example of this is gender dysphoria. This is in the headlines pretty much every day now. We're all familiar with it. People who experience gender dysphoria are alienated from the good bodies God has given them. They think God gave them the wrong body. But the reality is, the truth is, God did not. And the reality is, seeking liberation from the body God gave you and its limits and its design is to go after another God which David says here brings misery and the testimony of many people who have experienced gender transphoria and dysphoria and then have uh, sought to uh, transition, as it's put, have experienced that misery, the kind of misery David is talking about here. Their misery has been multiplied. It hasn't made things better. It's made things worse. We need to remember the creation of man as male and female is part of what God pronounced good in the beginning. It is part of God's good creation. You know we've got a problem with this kind of thing when a retailer like Target is marketing transgender products to toddlers with shirts that say things like trans pride and books with titles like bye bye binary and posters that say ask me about my pronouns. Okay that's real stuff that you can buy. It's like they want to turn kids into gender activists before they even know what gender is. But biblically we have to say this is a kind of satanic catechesis. It's training children into a satanic worldview. It's training children to despise the body, to hate what God made. And of course, for those who are a little bit older, say for teenagers, it also only intensifies rather normal bodily insecurities, most of which would be worked out with time and growth anyway. So it's just a disaster insofar as this is spreading through our culture. It is an absolute disaster. But this is what we need to understand. That may seem like a far away problem that you just read about. The reality is gender dysphoria is not the only form of bodily dysphoria in our culture. So many in our culture are at odds with their own bodily existence in other ways, and we need to take note of these as well. I'll just give you a few examples. Ways we misuse our bodies, ways we abuse our bodies, ways we don't appreciate the bodies God has given to us. And again, this derives from pagan philosophy, not biblical theology. Remember, I said a couple weeks ago in the sermon that Satan wants us to despise each other in the church, not to delight in each other, but to despise each other. Satan wants us to hate other Christians. Well, you know what else Satan wants? Satan wants us to hate ourselves. Satan wants you to hate other Christians. Satan also wants you to hate yourself. Satan wants you to look in the mirror and to think, God made a mistake. God didn't make me right. I've got too many flaws. Too many things are wrong with me. God must have made a mistake. That is how Satan wants you to think. We can't do that. We have to see our bodies as God's good creation. Our bodies, even with whatever other flaws they might have. Our bodies with whatever flaws and imperfections they might have are God's good gift to us to be appreciated and to be used according to his design. Again, here, let me just give you a couple of examples of this. Obviously, this is going well beyond Psalm 16, but I think it's working out this affirmation of the goodness of the body that you find in Psalm 16. 
Last week was Mother's Day, but we didn't really talk about motherhood much. But motherhood is important. Motherhood's a major theme in Scripture. Mothers get lots of attention in Scripture. The essence of motherhood is a woman giving her body for the sake of others. Motherhood means a woman using her body to give life and to sustain life. Motherhood is a sacrificial act, a sacrificial use of the body. But obviously then, motherhood is hard on the body. And many women in our culture today despise what motherhood does to the body. They despise what pregnancy and motherhood does to their bodies. Even though obviously those things are natural and good and right and glorious, of course being a mother is going to change your body. There's nothing more natural than that. And yet there's this strong reaction against it in our culture. There are many women who despise motherhood for just this reason. Birth rates in our culture, are, in our country, are lower than they've ever been. And this is a big reason why. Our culture hates motherhood, and a big reason why our culture hates motherhood is because our culture despises what motherhood does to the body of the woman. But that means we are rejecting God's design. God's good design for our good bodies. Now, that's something that, that women might struggle with, a kind of dysphoria that women might struggle with. But, you know, men have got their own issues that are different but similar. Men's bodies are very obviously designed for protection and provision. Men are made for work. Men's bodies are made to bear responsibilities. But today we've got more men dropping out of the workforce than ever before. We've got multitudes of men who do not want to use their bodies the way God designed for them to be used. Men who do not want to shoulder manly responsibilities. They revolt against maturity. They revolt against their own manhood. They revolt against the masculinity of their own bodies, the design that God has built into their bodies. They don't want to be protectors and providers. They don't want to shoulder the responsibilities God assigns to them. And again, this causes all kinds of problems in our culture. The downstream effects of this are catastrophic. Let me give you another example of this. God gives us all many, many gifts to enjoy. And very often the gifts God gives are enjoyed with and through our bodies. Think about music. Music is a gift of God. How do we enjoy music? With our ears, with our bodies. Or think about food and drink. Think about feasting together. How do we enjoy a good meal? How do we enjoy food and drink? With our taste buds, with our bodies. We enjoy so many of God's good gifts with our bodies. There's no other way to enjoy them. Now, if we are alienated from our bodies, if we are alienated from God's good design for our good bodies, we really can't receive and enjoy his good gifts as he intends. God wants us to enjoy him by enjoying his gifts. God wants us to enjoy him through the many gifts he gives us, and so often those in gifts involve our body, and they include bodily pleasure. We come to know the goodness of God through the goodness of the gifts that he gives us, and many of these gifts are bodily gifts. They're gifts that we enjoy and experience using our bodies. So the pleasures at God's right hand include bodily pleasures that God grants us. Last week I made reference to C.S. Lewis to his Screwtape Letters, one of his most brilliant 
works. Screw Tape Letters is a collection of uh, obviously imaginary letters from a senior demon to a junior demon. So it gives you some insight into the mind of Satan, how Satan works to tempt us and lead us astray. It's all about how Satan tempts Christians and seeks to draw us away from faithfulness to God. I quoted from that last week. I want to do it again here this morning because there's, a, there's another letter in that collection that's very relevant to what we're talking about here. And in fact, in this letter, you're going to hear a demon quote Psalm 16. Okay, that's how relevant it is. So remember, this letter is written from the satanic perspective. Listen to what one demon says to another describing God. So he, that is God, he's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade or only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Ugh. I don't think he has the least inkling of that high and austere mystery to which we rise in the miserific vision. He's vulgar, Wormwood. He has a bourgeoisie mind. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's of any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. Every line of that is brilliant. God is a hedonist. Nothing is naturally on Satan's side. The world God made is full of pleasures, and God does not mind in the least our enjoying those pleasures. God designed us for those pleasures, and he designed those pleasures for us. God is a hedonist. That's, that's a wonderful thought. God is full of joy, holy joy. And God calls us to a holy joy as well. Nothing is naturally on Satan's side. All the pleasures and joys of this life come from God and belong to him. Now, they can't be twisted. That's what the demons are talking about here. Those pleasures that God has built into his world can be twisted, and they can be made of use, they can, they can be made of satanic use in that way. But in, they are intrinsically good. And God wants us to enjoy these pleasures, these gifts that he gives to us. We are called to enjoy everything God gives to the fullest. Every gift God gives you, he wants you to enjoy it and enjoy it to the fullest. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Paul says, God gives us all things richly for our enjoyment. God wants us to be happy. God wants you happy. That's why there are everlasting pleasures at his right hand. God wants you full to overflowing with this joy. He wants you to be able to say with David in Psalm 16, 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. That's what God wants for you. Holy joy, holy pleasure, unending joy, unending pleasure all through Jesus. Jesus is the risen and ascended one. Jesus is the risen and reigning one. And God pours out his gifts on us through Jesus. He mediates God's gifts to us. And so Jesus really is the source of unending joy for those who trust in him, even as David trusted in him. 
We live in a culture that is full of misery. You can see the, the gloom and doom all around us. This is a misery that comes from rejecting God and God's ways and chasing after idols. This is a misery that comes from rejecting God and God's gifts and God's way of life. We live in a culture full of doom and gloom, a depressed and despairing culture, an unhappy culture. You can see it. You can feel it all around. We live in a culture full of unhappiness. Okay, let me tell you something. In that kind of culture, the kind of culture we live in, an unhappy culture, happiness is a witness. Joy is a witness. This kind of resilient, deep, defiant joy that God alone can give to us, that is a tremendous witness for the gospel in a culture like ours. It's a witness to, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the glorious gospel of the happy God. That's what we've got. That's our message. The glorious gospel of a blessed God. The glorious gospel of a happy God. That's our message to the world. But get this. Only a happy people can point others to a happy God. Only a joyful people can point others to a joyful God. Yes, there are greater pleasures at God's right hand awaiting us in the resurrection that is to come. But understand and know there is a deep and solid joy in Christ that can be yours right now. David had that kind of joy. Paul had that kind of joy. They had that kind of joy in horrible, extenuating circumstances. You can have that joy too, no matter what your circumstances are. The pleasures we were made for, the happiness we all crave, the joy we most desire, it's all found in Jesus in the risen and reigning Son. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us continue our worship by giving of our tithes and offerings.